0: Well, welcome to the Stop to Think podcast. I'm your host, Will Dole. Thank you for listening. Uh, If you're enjoying, you can rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. That helps new listeners find us. And today I have on the podcast, Dr. David Whitcomb. He's an MD and a PhD. He's an author as well as an academic physician, scientist, and an entrepreneur. He's a pioneer in the use of mathematics, genetics, neurosciences, immunology, epidemiology, and clinical sciences to study complex inflammation disorders and cancer risks with a focus on the pancreas. His research, education, and organizational innovations in precision medicine are studied and emulated by other programs throughout the world. And as it said there at the beginning, he is an author uh, of the new book, A Good and Faithful Servant from Master Books, which will be the subject of our conversation today. So welcome to the Stopping to Think podcast, Dr. Whitcomb.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: So as first question I wanted to ask is, you know, everybody's got a dad, and we're coming up here to Father's Day. Uh, probably be a little after Father's Day when this releases. But what inspired you? What about your dad inspired you to say it's worth the time and the effort and the labor to write a biography of him?
1: Um, Well, it never really dawned on me until uh, my daughter was asked as a junior high school student to interview her father about World War II. And so uh, he set up a camera with her, and she interviewed him, and I suddenly realized that uh, he had actually fought in Germany in World War II, in the Battle of the Bulge, and so many things that I just never really knew before, and so I decided to uh, get a detailed history of exactly what he did, and it turned out he had a lot of uh, information, papers uh, about the war, letters about- back and forth to his mother, a daily diary uh, that helped put it together. So uh, that's when it first began. And in fact, the picture on the front of the book is a picture of my father on the day that fighting ended in World War II as he had gone all the way across Germany, sat down by the Elb River, mission completed, and took his picture, and uh, 20 years old, and uh, had... uh, Really accomplished a lot and matured a lot as a new believer.
0: Wow, that's amazing. So, maybe you can just give us just a brief sketch of your father's life. Uh,
1: so, my father was uh, a son of an only son, and he was an only son in a military family. And uh, so, he grew up moving from city to city. Uh, he was born in Washington D.C. and. Then at age three, he was, uh, went to China with his father who was in the military as part of his foreign service and, uh, spent from age three till six in China. But his parents spent most of their time traveling and seeing the great wall and the forbidden city and those types of things. And he was left with a Chinese Anna named Peng and, uh, his first language that he learned was Mandarin Chinese. So he came back to the United States and could barely speak English. And um, then uh, was in uh, Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, then was transferred to Seattle, Washington, then uh, Fort Fort Benning, Georgia. And so uh, he spent his time uh, often alone, uh, his father was uh, an officer in the military, and uh, so uh, he didn't know that many people. He was relegated to his room as my grandparents entertained dignitaries and tried to work the social ladder to, to move up. And so he spent a lot of time reading, and he always loved Pung and wondered why he, his mother didn't care for him and why he, they always had servants. So his uh, upbringing, he was somewhat lonely. He um, spent a lot of time reading. He was fascinated by maps and the world and always had a a heart for China, for Chinese people, for Chinese food. I grew up in rural Indiana where he taught at Grace Seminary, and I was the only one in the county that could eat with chopsticks. So uh, that was a little bit of his background. Then um, he was in a terrible school in in Georgia, and my grandfather sent him to a military prep school uh, to get ready for the military, but it was actually run by two Christian brothers, the Macaulay brothers in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Uh, they indoctrinated him a lot about the scriptures. Then he, um, it, my grandfather, wanted him to go to West Point, but his eyesight was bad. He was sent to, and he got into Princeton, and there he met a man named Dollar, Donald Fullerton, who Uh, told him about Christ, he became a Christian, um, was, uh, after one year, was um, drafted into the army, came back, uh, then uh, worked with that uh, student group in uh, Princeton, went to Grace Seminary, and then became faculty there because his hope of returning to China as a missionary was dashed by Mao Zedong, who in 1950 right when he was ready to go murdered all of the christians and many other uh nationals and threw them out and forbid anyone to go back to china so he became a professor because he had no other plan so that's his his life up till 1950 yeah
0: that's a that's a pretty amazing uh way to end up in, in the academic field is you you want to go to the mission field and you can't, how do you, this wasn't one of the questions I had planned, but how do you think having Mandarin as his first language, how affected maybe how he, how he processed things, how he thought?
1: Um, Actually, I never thought of that before. Um, He was a very detail oriented, very organized person with almost a photographic memory, uh, attention to detail. Very, uh, I won't say disturbed, but uh, did not like disorder, and uh, that served him as a theologian because if there was a question, he just searched the scriptures until he uh, got the answer, and and uh, really served him well. But he always had a you know a a heart for foreign missions. Encouraged to seminary students. To go into missions, and, and matter of fact, hundreds of them went all over the world and uh, took the unique materials that he had developed that was a, uh, an important perspective with them, and that really had a, a long lasting impact and legacy.
0: Yeah, I so you touched on two of them already, but early in the book, you talk about four spiritual fathers. Uh, that, that your father had, John Whitcomb Sr., your grandfather, and Donald Fullerton, and then the other two being Alva McLean and Henry Morris. So I wonder if you could talk about the impact each of them had on him.
1: What was interesting to me is that my father, uh, he loved history, and he loved great leaders and people who really made a big difference and an impact and studied their lives. And he um, appreciated men that he respected that spent their time and energy to train him and to uh, work with him and talk with him and help him understand things. And uh, those four men played a very different but sequentially incredibly important roles in his life. Uh, my, um, My father and my grandfather were oil and water my grandfather, in the military, he was a colonel in, in patton's army, and he was a man 's man loved boxing and competition uh survival out in the in the uh, uh the wilderness uh you know massive fighting he, he was just he was that kind of a guy just went well, a brawler, but you know West Point graduate um, studied war uh ended up writing the new doctrines, war doctrines of World War II that turned out to be uh, critically important. He wasn't the only one, but he was uh, part of the team that rewrote the, um, the idea that you should fight trench warfare and then how do you uh, fight a tank war and keep the infantry uh, it, up at the speed of the tanks and the supply lines and reorganize the whole way that war is, is organized and fought. My father, on the other hand, was a book person and, um, you know, very, um, he hated conflict, uh, hated confrontation, uh, and uh, was just that, was that type of a person. But my father, my grandfather taught him loyalty, taught him respect for other people, talk, told him, taught him about organizations and hierarchy and the marks of a good leader and a lot of those things that were important uh, for becoming a, uh, I think, a solid young man. Donald Fullerton had been a missionary to uh, Afghanistan and India and was just an incredibly uh, brave, passionate person who wanted to bring the word of God to the world. But he became sick and had, was sent back to the United States. And since he was a Princeton graduate, he went back and just would spend Sunday afternoons teaching Bible studies. To Princeton students, and my father was brought to one of those classes by a former classmate from Macaulay School, and started listening. And then, after about seven or eight months of, of Bible study, um, he would have Fullerton uh, come to his room, and they would talk about the Bible and things for hours. Finally, decided he um, was going to accept Christ, and that meant total commitment that uh, he was not going to be an ambassador, which he was studying for, uh, but rather, uh, at least for the United States, to be an ambassador for the Lord. Um, then uh, Alva J. McLean was his theological father who went beyond, you know, a, a uh, what does the Bible say and how do you apply it to your life, but how does it, what does it mean and how do you wrestle with controversy and heresy and Um, how, in what way is scripture supreme? How can you um, develop doctrines out of Bible verses by comparing scripture with scripture and uh, had him grading papers for him in seminary and really mentored him that way. So these are men that spent time uh, really building him and developing him. And just in looking around our neighborhood, I'm thinking, you know, where are the, Exceptional men who dedicate time to mentor young men. And what a, what a problem that is in our society, because uh, to my father, that was just critically important. And, um, you know, that's how we really learned so much. And then, of course, Henry Morris, who he co-authored The Genesis Flood with, was more of a scientific father, uh, which was really an interesting relationship that they had as well.
0: Yeah, and you you just brought up the Genesis Flood there. Maybe you could tell us a little bit of the background of that book, where it came from, and then uh, what impact it had on the theological landscape and even broader Christianity in in the 20th century and on into the present, really.
1: Well, the Genesis Flood is a remarkable book, and it is remarkable, especially within the historic context. And growing up, you know, the book was out when I was young and people, you know, were just, it was life changing for, for hundreds or thousands of people. And they came up to me, David, do you know who your father is? <laughs> and I'm like, yes, he lives at our house. <laughs> um, but as I got older and was able to really read that book, it was, it was completely remarkable. And I wondered who, who, Else could have written this book. Hmm. How did he do it, and what what was the the pathway like? And so, while the biography was initially focused on our family history and our dad, you know, was part of the Greatest Generation and fought in World War II, uh, as word got out about uh, this this project, and I started getting more information about it, uh, the story really. Through the first half of his life is the generation of the Genesis flood. Hmm. And what was remarkable about going through his life history is you could see in retrospect with crystal clarity that God had moved my father from situation to situation to give him experiences and perspectives and training that was critical for him to eventually write the Genesis flood. And I'll just give you two examples. I told you that he was interested in in geography and world people. When he got accepted to Princeton, he had to sign up for his classes, and he loved maps, so he thought, well, uh, you know, geology and and, uh, geography are about the same thing. I'll sign up for these classes. And so he did, and it turned out he was in classes that were taught by the world's leading paleontologist and geological evolutionist. They were the ones that wrote the textbooks that others were studying. And so he learned directly from them and from their you know, experiences and, and field trips and trilobites and where they came from and those kinds of things, all about this in great detail. Well, when he got... Uh, drafted into the into the war, he uh, was moved into a special program called the AST program. And these are for people who were, you know, exceptional college students, and they were used for special services. Uh, the one he wanted was language-based and uh, politics-based, where when a, an army comes in and destroys a, uh, you know, a, a, a city, and uh, then moves on, you've got you know, thousands of people, and you have to have some kind of a civil organization, and so the government, uh, the army, had people that were trained in language and in and, uh, and those types of things that would come in uh, after the army and set up a provisional government, and that's what he wanted to do because he loved languages, and he'd forgotten his Mandarin, but he could speak French, German, Spanish, and other languages. Wow! But when he tried to get into that, it turns out he was a few classes short because he had taken geology instead of additional language. And so they said, we're assigning you to uh, engineering. And he wrote a letter to his father. And he said, they've denied me, you know, my passion and my skills and sent me to do engineering. And I hate engineering and I want to refuse to go. And his father wrote back to him, and his father was not a believer, but said, well, son, sometimes there is a higher power, in capital letters and quotes, who knows your skills and abilities and needs you to be trained for a greater purpose. Mm -hmm. So as a good soldier, go and learn the lessons that uh, you're being taught and do your best. And so he did well, fast forward to seminary where he was uh, had been trained uh, to be a missionary, and just before he you know went he was going to go to the um, the, the same group that Hudson Taylor was at, uh, that door closed, and he had no other plans and the the uh, president of the seminary came to him. Just before graduating, he said, "You know, uh, we have one of our professors he has resigned. We have an opening. Would you like to teach? Um, and since you love history, we'll have you teach Genesis, the Pentateuch, Greek exegesis, uh, and uh, some other Old Testament books." And so he agreed. And when he started studying it, he started Genesis with verse one, and it said, "In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth." Well, at that time, all Christians had, uh, almost all Christians had abandoned a literal interpretation of the Bible, and it was allegorical, and, you know, there was a gap between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2 where all the dinosaurs lived on the earth, and there was many ages, and then, you know, he, God recreated it in verse 2 and then put man on it in some way. Um, but the more, you, more he studied it, that's not what it said. And so he became convicted that actually the Bible was true and everybody else was wrong. And for somebody who didn't like controversy or fighting, that was sort of a bold move. Um, And as he put and started teaching that in the seminary, that turned out to be a little bit controversial as well. Um, But it turned out there was a Christian organization called the American Scientific Association, and uh, they had a conference at Grace Seminary where my father was, and they had all of these scientists come in and give papers on how to reinterpret the scripture so it accounts for this thing and that thing according to the theory of evolution. There was one guy that gave a paper that said, Actually, if you look at all the geology in the world, it is consistent with a global flood, and his name was Henry Morris. Hmm. And uh, so, Henry Morris. Uh, was uh, pretty roundly criticized by the other uh, people at the conference. My father went up to him and said, um, I think you're biblically correct. And so they started corresponding and correspond for a little while. And then, you know, Henry Morris sent him a letter and said, you know, it's nice talking to you. Perhaps in the future we can be of mutual help to each other from time to time. And uh, then a few years later, my father, Uh, recontacted him, and that began the Genesis flood. But the critical part was that uh, my father, who was an expert in the scriptures, also was competent, but not an expert in geology, geography, hydrodynamics, physics, mathematics, all those things. So he could work uh, directly with Henry Morris from a position of knowledge and not just take things point blanks and vice versa for henry morris who is a devout christian but he's no theologian and so the two people who were outstanding experts in their own fields but competent in the other people's fields uh had to unite to to make this book the, the way it was
0: yeah it's um Obviously, one of those providential happenings <laughs> where, where God brings people together like that. Well, can you describe uh, for the listener who may not be familiar with the Genesis flood, like what kind of impact did it have upon its publication?
1: So the premise of the Genesis flood was that God wrote one book and it was called the Bible. And he did not lie. And my father's contribution is that he went from Genesis to Revelation and looked up every single passage that had anything to do with either creation or Noah or Genesis flood or any description, including Psalms and Proverbs and the New Testament and Jesus and Peter and others. And what he discovered was that there was only one narrative and that the Hebrew and Greek language was structured with explicit clarity that in the beginning, God created the world and the heavens in six literal 24-hour days, period. There is no other narrative anywhere in Scripture, and there is no other use of those terms in a contradictory way. Secondly, God destroyed the world that then was with a global flood that lasted for a year. And it could not have been a local flood because you don't have local floods lasting a year because the water seeks its own level uh, globally. And all the descriptions are about a global flood that destroyed the world as a punishment for sin. There is no other narrative. And so therefore, we have to take the Bible at its word. And that is the core of the Genesis flood. The other part was, if you actually objectively look at geology and the fossils and how it works, it it screams of a global flood with destruction of animals and forest and those types of things. But if you understand the impact of moving water and how much sediment it could hold and what happens when it slows down and the sediment drops out that clearly explains everything we see in the, in the earth. And then there's other things that just, you know, obviously couldn't happen by chance, but that was the focus of the book. Uh, interestingly, uh, Dwayne or um, uh, one of the early uh, scientist that became a six-day creationist and worked for a long time. I had a chance to to interview him. And I said, you know, you're a scientist. What was it about the Genesis flood that convinced you to become a six-day creationist and a flood geologist? And he said, you know, he says, I'm a scientist with real world experience in science. But when I read the Genesis flood, it became clear to me that the Bible says God created the world in six days And destroyed it with a flood. So I became a 68 creationist. And then I went back and started doing my science. And I thought, you know what? That is absolutely correct. That's what the impact was, because it gave a clear defense of what the Bible said. And then uh, explanations that if you really look critically at geology, geography, astronomy, uh, physics, hydrodynamics, biology, uh, the uh, living beings, everything. Um, it, it screams of a creator. It, that's it, just, that is the, that is the explanation and everything we see is consistent with that. And, and so what was amazing was when that book came out in 1961, it was just after the 100 year anniversary of, of, um, the Origin of the Species by by Dar, uh, Charles Darwin, and there was a big celebration in Chicago of the evolutionists as a triumph of having completely destroyed the Bible and shown through science that the Bible was a fraud. That was in 1960. But God wasn't done yet, <laughs> and that book uh, just had a ripple effect around the world and you know, by 1980, you know, something like 90% of Americans believe that God created the world Mm -hmm. and the, and it it exposed one of the huge fallacies of evolution. And that is that everything just gradually, you know, changed over time. And, and uh, the, the Genesis flood demonstrated that there had to be a catastrophe to account for, you know, a whole variety of things we observe. And the evolutionists finally agreed that, yes, that was the case. So they came up with things like uh, punctate equilibrium, where there was all of a sudden a huge disaster and rapid evolution to the next phase. But they were criticized by other evolution that says you have a theory with no mechanism. How could you have rapid evolution? What what was it that caused this? And, of course, there's no answer. And even today, on television, on cartoons, everywhere, it's that, you know, in the age of the dinosaurs, there was uh, volcanic eruption. Uh, There was a meteor that hit the earth. There was a comet that twisted the earth on its axis and caused climate change. Uh, There were, you know, fires, anything but a flood. Yet, as we dig below our feet, the only evidence is that there was a flood catastrophe. It happened rapidly and recently. The problem, of course, is that if it was a flood that was global, as said in the Bible, it proves that God punishes sin and that is unacceptable to atheists and those who hate god
0: it's an interesting point that uh, the issue many would have would be the the anger god has towards sin i, I wonder as you're describing you know it, i think it's Dwayne gish is that who you were quoting earlier uh,
1: uh, no, it was um, Snelling, Andrew no, Snelling. Okay, okay.
0: Yeah, I remember reading the quote. I just I can't remember who it was from. Yeah. Um, he, what it's uh, pointing to is is really the the influence of Van Til and, and the presuppositional apologetics. You know, like we start with, okay, what does God say, and then move on. Uh, I'm running a little short on time here, so I I had a few things I wanted to ask, but I want to kind of shift towards a conclusion. What do you think is the the most important part of your father's legacy? Well,
1: um, you know, there's, uh, you know, he was not a one hit wonder. He was a mm-hmm. man who accomplished so much. And the main thing he was really dedicated to was to training other people yeah. who would be skilled in the word and how to defend the Bible as uh, Van had taught him uh, to teach others. And he poured it his life into other people. And in the book, I talk about, you know, 1,000 men that he personally mentored himself and uh, sent it out throughout the world. And so the ripple effect of the Genesis flood, the, uh, the demonstration to the Genesis flood actually of a inductive Bible study method rather than deductive. And that was really the major a major event. And a lot of that came out of the, the, the way the Genesis flood was, was written. Uh, those, I mean, those things, uh, it's changed Christian doctrine as well. Uh, the the uh, issue of evolution is no longer considered Orthodox Christians, considered considered heresy uh, by Bible believing Christians. And uh, so there's a lot of, a lot of effects he had.
0: As, is- are there any of his books that you'd, rec- I mean, uh, obviously Genesis Flood's the, the big one, but he wrote several books. What Was there one in particular that you'd recommend to the audience?
1: Uh, he wrote uh, two books uh, for more for lay people rather than technical scientists. One is The World That Perished, about the Genesis Flood, and the other is The Early Earth, to talk about the days of creation. So those two, if you're interested in science and uh, the story around the Genesis Flood, uh, those are ones that are really for, um, you know, Christians who have an interest in science, uh, but uh, haven't, you know, gone and gotten advanced degrees and are interested in the technical details.
0: Mm-hmm. I think if you search those uh, or search his name on Amazon, those are the first two that pop up. And the third one is your book, which is A Good and Faithful Servant by Dr. David Whitcomb. Uh, thank you for joining us on the podcast today. Is it okay if I read just like one short paragraph from from the book yes. that I thought uh, really... Kind of captured the essence here. It says, Dr. John Whitcomb knew that God had made him, saved him, preserved him through World War II, and molded him through multiple circumstances. His intellectual gifts, personality, physical endurance, experiences, and circumstances, in retrospect, were the perfect preparation for this task. But these gifts were also joined together with a will, passion, dedication, and perseverance in every sphere and every opportunity to do all that he could for the glory of God. And I just thought what a, what a beautiful tribute um, would that we all would be mentoring others and, and influencing them with whatever gifts and talents God has given us. They may be less than uh, Dr. Whitcomb had, but uh, certainly, certainly God's given us each something and we can, we can use all of our perseverance and our, our efforts to, to glorify him. So is there anything else you'd like to add before, before we conclude today, Dr. Whitcomb?
1: No, uh, but uh, I, I would just add that, uh, one of the comments by one of the reviewers was that uh, she had never heard of my father before read the book and became extremely encouraged that mm. uh, about the impact of the life of a man who as is documented in the book was about serving god as the main priority day and night seven days a week and uh, that was just an incredible encouragement to see that there were men like that that could serve as a a uh, an example for her, her husband, who was a pastor, and her children. So I thought that was, uh, you know, uh, really his life and why it's important to study it.
0: Absolutely. Well, thank you again to our guest, Dr. David Whitcomb. The book is, once more, A Good and Faithful Servant, this has been the Stopping a Think Podcast. I'm your host, Will Dole. Thank you for listening.